good evening, everybody. Welcome to the LSE, and uh, welcome to this, the second of the forum's Jean Monnet annual lectures. I'm Simon Vendening, and I'm the director of the Forum for European Philosophy, and I work here at the LSE in the European Institute. In the first lecture in this series last week, uh, Robert Young from uh, NYU outlined Freud's discussions of cultural evolution, the what we in English often call the, the process of civilization. And Freud suggests that we owe the most astonishing achievements of human culture to that process. But it is also, in Freud's view, the cause of incredible suffering for individuals. So you have this difference between cultural development and individual malaise. Culture, as Freud understands it, requires the disciplining of libidinal desires, the sublimation of sexual instincts, which in turn leads to ever greater cultural production. So through this sublimation, we are then in a position where we produce these remarkable cultures. But the achievement of greater cultural production leads only to further sublimation and greater individual dissatisfaction. Culture, and in particular what Freud calls the high watermark of European civilization, has a certain kind of doom built into it for Freud. The more successful it is, culturally speaking, the more disquieting it is for the individuals who belong to it. And Jung suggested that Europe's crisis today, with ever-increasing technocratic order, combined with ever-increasing social disorder, might reflect that kind of Freudian diagnosis. Well, our guest lecturer today, Richard Bellamy, is one of the great thinkers of European politics today, and will doubtless follow the malaise of contemporary Europe in a different way, focusing primarily on the tensions introduced into a political formation consisting of multiple national demoids and structured around the representation of states at a supranational level, in the Commission, in the European Parliament, and, still for the moment anyway, representation through national parliaments within the EU. Equilibrium, whether institutional or personal or social, looks hard to come by here, a certain <coughs> malaise predictably unavoidable. Well, if anyone can find a route through this, I think Richard can. He's Professor of Political Science and the Director of the Second Best European Institute in the UK <laughs> at UCL. And he has recently been awarded the Serena Medal by the British Academy for Services to Italian Studies. Well, it's more than Italy that needs him now. And I'm delighted to have him with us today, Richard Bellamy. Thank you. So, I mean, uh, th this paper originated from thinking about why it was that uh, decision-making in the EU was proving so difficult in the light of what is undeniably a, a crisis uh, of probably the greatest crisis that the EU has ever had to face. And 
So that led me to, to think about uh, various problems which are inherent, I think, to the way in which the EU governance structure uh, is laid out. If one uh, looks at, as I, as I often do, at Article 10 <laughs> of the, of the um, Treaty of the European Union, as it has been since the Lisbon Treaty, which uh, introduced a number of, of interesting changes, uh, you find there that, that the EU is defined as a, as a representative democracy committed to the principle of political equality. Uh, and it's a system which provides for representative democracy through three discrete channels. First, directly through the European Parliament. Second, indirectly, through heads of state or government in the European Council or in the uh, Council by their government. And thirdly, and this is a complete innovation in the treaty, through domestic elections and national parliaments as ways of controlling what um, heads of government uh, do in the council, but also increasingly as a direct way of informing European policy, in part through a, a series of other innovations that are made within the, uh, <coughs> uh, which came about because of the Lisbon Treaty. So you have these three Channels. Now, I think it's, <coughs> there have been many people who've, who've criticised uh, the EU, and many Eurosceptics have often sort of said, oh, the EU is creating all sorts of, of um, policies which the member states never contracted to, don't like, or whatever. But I think one thing that this crisis has shown is that when it comes to dealing with the issues which are closest to national interests, that channel of the government, the intergovernmental channel, is the one which is by far and away the most important. Uh, but it's also one which possibly accords least with the principle of political equality. If one takes seriously that the goal of the EU is an ever closer union of European peoples, plural, rather than the creation of a European people, singular, then one aspect of that that you might expect <coughs> is that you produce policies which lead to greater mutual recognition and uh, 
greater extent of non-domination of any one country over another within the EU. And in some senses, I think that one could sort of say that that's been a great achievement of the EU, but it's one which is often unsung, <laughs> and that is because there's often a great deal of concentration on the EU as being two rather different things. The EU as a supranational project deemed to be promoting a European interest, and the EU simply as the, for the mutual self-interests of the particular states. So what I'm going to suggest to you in, in this talk is that the reason for, the, for, for that, for the failure of the EU to deliver on what is put there in all of the treaties as the overriding aim of the EU, that is, an ever closer union of European peoples. The reason for that is that the two forms of representation which predominate in European decision making are, in terms of their order of importance, the intergovernmental channel followed by the supranational channel. But this third channel, that of developing the direct input of the various demoi into European decision-making is one which, as I've said, has only even appeared as being officially recognised uh, with the Lisbon Treaty, and that in, in many respects in a uh, misguided way. So what I'm going to do is, is because my background is as a political theorist, I'm, I'm going to, to start by talking about three models of representative democracy in, in the abstract, how uh, democracy might work. I'm then going to relate these three models to three forms of political community, uh, and which are also three ways of understanding uh, the EU. And then to the, and then in the final part, to these three channels of representation within the EU's political system. And what I'm going to argue is not only are these three different channels, there are also three different ways of representing and of constructing the public interest, a, a European public interest, if you like. And that they are mutually incompatible with each other, that, that uh, there is a problem in doing that. And that, ironically, it's only going to be this last channel, the national parliaments, which would be capable of producing a form of the, national interest, uh, of the European interest, which would be consistent with that overarching goal of a union of European peoples. So, Broadly speaking, I think you could sort of say that democratic politics has two main tasks. Uh, there's a negative task of protecting the interests of the ruled from being dominated and manipulated by their rulers. 
And then there's a positive task of getting citizens to participate in the construction of the public interest. And roughly speaking, you know, simplifying hugely here, uh, there have been two conceptions of democracy. One which you might call a, a liberal version in terms of the history of political thought uh, has emphasised the protective uh, task. And it's, it's argued that individuals have private rights to liberty uh, and that they are paramount and democracy is, has a particular task in, in dealing with that. And that the only valid form of public interest is one which aggregates um, the individual interests and serves to protect their pre-political rights. So it sees the uh, positive task through the negative task. And then you've got sort of what, for want of a better term, I'll call Republican accounts. And they emphasize the positive task. They see that the, the main goal of, of democracy is to develop a general will which represents the, the common good of those involved. And that if, if it does that well, that task well, then the, the protected task of, of of uh, ensuring that individual rights are recognised is bundled in to that positive task. Now within these, these uh, two models, uh, both of them can be seen in terms of representative democracy as the EU treaty conceives what one does. And but, but they they involve different kinds of of, of uh, representation, or they conceive that task in a way which is consistent with the type of democracy that they're putting forward. So, you know, <clears throat> roughly speaking, the role of representation can be outlined in the way that Hannah Pitkin did in her famous account that. Uh, you can either stand for uh, the representatives either stand for those who they represent in some kind of symbolic way or descriptive way like a picture of you know a portrait of if I was a hologram rather than myself as it were being here that would stand for me or it could, you can have somebody who acts for you and that acting for someone could be, for example, <clears throat> if my voice had gone, Simon could read my paper, for example, and act for me as a, as a delegate. Or if I haven't turned up and I'm 
uh, and I hadn't said him a favour, he could, he could have sort of said, well, this is what I think Richard would have said had he been here acting as a, as a trustee. Now, in the thin liberal model, uh, the way in which representatives act for those who they represent is either they do so, well, I mean, uh, sorry, uh, the way in which they do so <laughs> is a bit like the way in which an executive works of a company, of a, of a, uh, a listed company, works for their shareholders. So shareholders assume that the executive of the company knows what they're doing uh, and a process has been put into place for them to be there. Indirectly, they control it because what they're looking for is for their profits to be maximised. And so the, the, the role of the executive is to do that. But we don't inquire into the workings of, of the company. Uh, we put them there to do that for us. So a, at one level you could sort of say they're mandated by us simply to do what's going to maximise our, our profits, whatever that may be. But they have discretion, their own judgement as to how to do it. But within the kind of more Republican view, the assumption is that our representatives are there in a sense because they share our judgments in some sort of way. They are more like the hologram of me or more like someone reading my script in a certain sense. They've got to think that they are like me in some way, in order to produce this common good. It's because, in a certain sense, there is a common good already there that they're able to reproduce it. So there, they're not simply, they're not so much representing my, my interests as sharing my judgments. That's how it's done, or that's what is alleged to be done. Now I think there are problems with, with both these models. With the kind of shareholder model, it means that in a certain sense, uh, the, the chief executive, as it were, always is going to be, you know, they have to deliver the results for those who hold the shares. And of course, the results, will, they've got to deliver results for the it, it, well, it assumes that all the shareholders have similar interests. Otherwise, what they should do is deliver the results for the shareholders who hold the most shares in that sort of sense. Um, so either you, so what they're seeking, in a certain sense, is what is often called Pareto optimality for for those that nobody will be worse off, but everyone will be maximised. The other view 
assumes common judgments <clears throat> and in a certain sense a coincidence of, of, of interests of a much deeper kind as a result that there is no difference uh, amongst them as to, to, to their, their uh, <laughs> interests and that they can do that because those who are representing in some sense have a strong identification are like those who they're representing. What is difficult is to get a balance between that, to get people to reflect on their judgments in the light of their differences of, of interest, to get the groups to involve in mutual recognition, for the representatives to operate in ways that produce mutual recognition between those who they are representing. That assumes some form of interaction between the representatives on the one hand and those who they represent on the other in order to get that sort of dialogue going. Now, I think that what happens in, in national elections, not perfectly, but to a considerable degree, is a degree of that interaction. But when, when uh, competing parties put their different programs to the electorate, they do so in seeking to test out what will engage as many people as possible. And in the process of doing that, and having to compete with the opposite views of other parties, they're forced into a certain interaction with citizens. I mean, I know that, unfortunately, we live in cynical times when citizens often complain bitterly about how parties don't take any interest in what they say or think or do. But if you analyse what's actually going on in parliaments and most parties, I mean, the opposite is, is the case. I mean, uh, one might even sort of say that they're too concerned <laughs> with what ordinary citizens have to say. But I don't think that is, because I'm a Democrat, I don't think that is the case. Uh, I don't think they are too concerned, but they are incredibly concerned and, and responsive to, uh, to the views of, of their constituents. So I want to suggest that, that uh, these three ways of thinking about democracy and representation uh, uh, one associated with liberalism, one associated, uh, associated with republicanism, and one which is sort of a mixture of the two, uh, can be related to, to three um, forms of political community, or, or what in the written version of this paper I, I, I rather uh, sort of... Um, obscurely perhaps call three political ontologies. Um, so one is an ontology that in the 17th century, etc., was, was known as the ontology of singularism. And according to this view, society, you know, in, in, in Mrs. Thatcher's infamous words, is just a collection of individuals and their families. 
It's 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 a society of, of rights-bearing groups. And that vision of society developed as a counter to a vision which uh, was known as political solidarism, uh, which assumed a, that individuals, that citizens, were incorporated in this view. The last great theorist of solidarism was, was Hobbes. And Hobbes's Leviathan, the picture on the frontispiece, is of a body with all of the people their little faces, etc., inside the body of the Leviathan. They are incorporated in it. And, and we still have this notion of solidarism uh, in the notion of a corporation and of corporate responsibility. Universities are sometimes portrayed in legal terms as corporations. And the notion is that those in charge share the judgment. There is a shared, they can act as one body. And the view which sort of combines the two, which uh, the philosopher Philip Pettit has identified as being a view which you find in, in John Rawls, is what Pettit calls a civicity. And he says, as with a group agent, that of solidarism, the members of a civicity will be committed to debating about the purposes that they purportedly share. So there is an attempt to have shared judgment. But as with a mere aggregate of individuals, what you might call singularism, they will they will not aim at establishing a body of common judgments on which to act. Unlike both, however, a sophisticity will debate with a view of imposing constraint on the individual and body commissioned to act in their name. So, if there is a, to be a given policy, for example, say, should we adopt austerity measures or should we develop um, more investment in infrastructural uh, issues in order to get ourselves out of this crisis. What well, the sophisticity you know, accepts that people may have differing views on this, but what they will have is, uh, and will have developed over time, a common criteria by which to uh, adjudicate and discuss these policies and a belief that it is actually legitimate to devise common policies which don't sim which 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 can be looked at in terms of common criteria as well as simply what maximizes each person's interest so it's an attempt to balance the language of rights and utility if you like um, within our common decision-making processes. And we've been able to develop that, I think, within uh, political communities to the extent that two conditions have proved to be true. 
One is a condition of, of political equality, and that is that we all have a roughly equal stake in collective decision-making. And to the extent that gets eroded, as arguably it has been eroded even within national policies over time, then democracy becomes very difficult to sustain if people don't feel that they're going to be roughly equally affected by common collective policies. And the second feature is the need for uh, political debates to be carried out in public, that there is a common public sphere for the debating of these collective policies. So that it's not possible for rulers simply to talk to each discrete group and come to bargains with them, separate from what happens elsewhere. And uh, one can say, again, that that has been eroded over time. But I think that you know, if one thinks about something like the Leveson inquiry, as a public thing which then gets reported in all of the newspapers, etc., that is an instance, in a certain sense, of an uncovering of these issues. That there is an, actually an attempt to have a, a national debate about these, these, these issues. And it's precisely those two qualities which then foster the development of, of a sophisticity. Okay, so let me now try to bring this together in talking about the EU and those, those three channels of representation that I mentioned right at the beginning of, of the talk, the, the intergovernmental, the supranational, and the domestic. So if one thinks about the intergovernmental, uh, and sees what's going on there, then my argument will be that it's very much like uh, the ontology of political singularism. And the way in which they make their decisions is rather like the stylized liberal form of democracy, which I mentioned before. In other words, what what uh, government ministers see themselves as doing when they're involved in, in the European Council or whatever, or the Council of Ministers, is that uh, their, their role is to maximise the interests of the constituents that they represent. That's, and so they are seeking to develop policies which reflect mutual self-interest, or which are Pareto optimal. That's their, their role. And, uh, and so they're willing to understand the EU precisely in those terms. They devolve power uh, only to the extent that they regard that what the Commission might do, or the European Court, is produce collectively maximizing policies, policies which are in the mutual self-interest of the contracting states. So they're not 
The role of these institutions is not on this account to produce policies which are in the European interest, but in the mutual self-interest of European states, which is a different thing, obviously. Um, so, for example, it's you know the European Court of Justice, or the Court of uh, Justice of the European Union, as we now call it. Um, uh, that is is seen as being a legitimate institution to the extent that it's resolving prisoners' dilemmas that, that might uh, collective action problems uh, over uh, adherence to policies which are in the mutual self-interest of states so long as no state free rides. So there's, there is always going to be a, 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 a temptation to free ride um, but that would then undermine the benefit that comes from the policy overall. So you bind yourself within this system in order to resolve that kind of dilemma. So that's, that's how, from this channel, you understand what's going on. But of course, as soon as you have a crisis, such as we have now, where it's quite difficult to come up, or it may be perceived that there aren't policies which operate at optimal, that, that, one is def that there are definite winners and definite losers, those who are bailing out the debtor, the, the, the states that have sovereign debt, then this policy is going to come unstuck. It's going to be much harder to, to, to maintain the fiction that all states are equal within this arrangement because the payer states will want to be treated as being more equal than the debtor states in various ways and seek to impose advantageous uh, policies which are advantageous to the payer states onto the debtor states. Um, and that is precisely the situation in which we find ourselves. On the other hand, you know, people might sort of say, well, where have been the Commission and these other organiza uh, uh, supranational organisations? Well, when they're not fulfilling their role simply as means of gluing together mutual self-interest, they have to claim that they are, in some sense, representing a European common good. But the basis on which they do that is by claiming, without any form of authorization or accountability for this claim, that uh, because they are, in some sense, a microcosm of Europe which thereby represents judgments that we all share. And so there is a huge rhetoric about how Europe shares a common cultural heritage and other blah-de-blah you know, blah, rhetorical stuff. Because it is <coughs> complete rhetoric, which has you know, <coughs> no basis 
in anything at all. Uh, it's not historically accurate. Uh, it's, it's not sociologically accurate. But it is believed in, I think, having spoken to a number of people, by those who are socialised into it uh, in Brussels. Very often quite passionately, sometimes quite cynically, but still, it's there. <laughs> but precisely because it's neither authorised nor accountable, it's very weak. Uh, so despite, as I said, the often eurosceptical comments about a kind of Brussels mandating all sorts of things for, uh, to the United population, very little can go on which hasn't, which can pass, uh, you know, because it's got to go through all of that, uh, all of those intergovernmental veto points in order to ever become policy. So from that point of view, Myoni and Moravchik were right to sort of say that the EU, uh, is, you know, there's no democratic deficit in the EU, provided it's limited to policies simply of a Pareto improving kind. The difficulty is it's crept into areas where that's no longer credible as a way of, of thinking about what's, what's happening. And the system is one, in addition, which is hugely inflexible as a result of this, too, because, um, I mean, another reason for the incapacity of the EU is that because everything has to go through very high agreement thresholds, <laughs> once it's been agreed to, it stays. It's hard to go back on, on what you've already uh, on. Is it possible to get beyond this this impasse? Well, you know, some people sort of say, well, the obvious way surely would be if you empowered the European Parliament, set up common political structures, then that would that would beginning begin to work. The difficulty is, as I uh, suggested, that, that what enables a sophisticity to work is when uh, you have those two criteria being met, that of being reasonably commonly affected, equally affected by collective policies with an equal interest in those collective policies, and that there is a shared public sphere, so that debates don't just address discrete publics. But neither of those conditions are currently being uh, met within uh, the, uh, the you know, economic diversity in the EU. If you compare the EU with the United States, for example, the, you know, uh, Mississippi and, and Delaware, uh, the, the, the difference in wealth between those two countries is five times less than the difference between the poorest EU 
uh, state, uh, Lithuania, and and uh, the poorest and the richest EU state, which one cuts out Luxembourg, is Denmark. Uh, so there is a, a massive uh, gap, there, which is also reflected. Uh, you know, then there's a massive gap in in the public sphere. As it's well known, there are no common public uh, media read uh, widely, except by the elite. And actually, even the one, I mean, the, the two papers which are widely read by the elite are the FT and the um, Herald Tribune, uh, neither of which are known for their pro-European uh, stance. So, <clears throat> it's also the case that the number of, if you like, transnational Europeans is quite small. Uh, the European statistics say there are about 12 million EU citizens resident in a, in a state other than their own. And that's compared to you know, 460 million in Europe as a whole. So that's 2% of the EU are, are that probably. There could be a very high proportion in this audience, but that's because it's the educated elite who are predominantly amongst that 2%. Um, so, I think that a better way of dealing with is by trying to prioritize talking about Europe in domestic political situations, uh, in particular within domestic uh, parliaments. And to begin to rethink about the EU in the light of its, of its declared aim, which is that, as I put it, the, uh, uh, a union, a ever closer union of European peoples. Now, I think the two criteria should should govern that. <laughs> One is criteria is that each of those peoples should be treated, uh, should be should be uh, given as much capacity to be a people as, as, as possible. In other words, the aim is to, is to boost their standard as, as, as people so that you, no one people can dominate another people. And so you want a, a system which is developing, which preserves the integrity of each people, but on the other hand, seeks to treat each of them with equal concern and respect between them. And actually I think that European citizenship as it was originally conceived was something which was fitted this rather neatly because one of the arguments was that when people move to another member state they should not be discriminated against on grounds of their nationality, so equal respect with that of another state. But at the same time they shouldn't become a burden on, on the politics of that other state. So uh, you could, if you, if you went there for 
without having a job, then you couldn't claim uh, social services, medical care, or whatever. You had to be a contributor to that, so that you, you weren't undermining. And it was an attempt not to have transfers from one country to another uh, done indiscreetly. I think, to a degree, some of the court's decisions have undermined that, but they've done it in a way which actually treats European citizens as part of a politics of singularism, because they're simply rights-bearing uh, individuals with no duties to anybody or anything, as far as I can tell. Uh, they're just allowed to claim anything anywhere. But that's without contributing anything anywhere, or, no, or having any obligation to do that. Um, which is obviously an unsustainable policy if it was more than 12 million people doing this. Um, or even a fraction of those 12 million people for whom that was actually happening. It's a very small group. But, um, but a policy which actually sought mutual recognition is a much more positive uh, view. Now, I think that the way in which national parliaments have been empowered to receive all the documentation regarding uh, EU and encouraged to discuss it is potentially such a positive move. Uh, it, they are also given a negative role uh, as watchdogs of subsidiarity and proportionality. So it's possible, it's quite a high threshold if, if parliaments uh, believe that such that EU measures are a threat to, uh, are, are, are are inconsistent with subsidiarity, then collectively they can issue an early warning uh, mechanism card uh, against that, a yellow card or an orange card, depending on how many of them um, club together to do that. But more positively, they can give reasoned views on, on, on proposals. And in fact, parliaments have done far more of that than they have attempted to, to issue warnings about attacks on, on subsidiarity. And increasingly, they're beginning to work together and with the European Parliament through an organization known as COSAC in order to inform European policymaking by being consulted by European committees prior, uh, parliamentary, European parliamentary committees in the, as part of the, the legislative process so that um, their views are fed in to discussions of particular measures. So I think that you know, now no one can doubt that European policymaking is domestic policymaking, particularly with rules that are coming into place to do with budget, budgetary matters, which are, you know, if, if control of the budget isn't a national parliamentary democratic matter, nothing is. I think the solutions that are being predominantly put forward are ones which fit that politics of singularity as represented by states. I think some of the proposals being put forward point to a, a politics of solidarism, which in terms of democratic accountability is liable to be just as um, implausible as the view that we've had from, from the intergovernmental. So, but there is an opportunity 
to empower national parliaments and national electorates more in thinking about Europe and understanding its role within domestic politics and getting the vast majority of domestic politicians more involved in European decision making and collaborating with each other on that issue. And to the extent that that is happening, I think one has the possibility for uh, a, a European simplicity to develop. It will be a slow process, I fear, uh, and people might sort of say, well, the crisis that faces us requires much quicker action than that. But I think to move, I mean, every whenever there is a, a blip like this, of course, it tends to promote integration beyond perhaps what national populations, electorates are really ready for. The reason that's always given for that is that they feel that the opposite of ever, ever more integration of a certain kind, of a centralised kind, is for the whole thing to collapse. Well, I don't think that is the choice that faces us. And for once, we should think, instead of more or not, maybe we should be going for better. Uh, I mean, it's a false choice that we're always play, faced with on any decision when European citizens are directly consulted. It's always in or out, yes or no. It's never, well, I'd like some better alternative to what we've got, more plausible, which fits with actually the ways in which uh, even in Eurosceptical Britain, I think most citizens think, where, where I think the, the mean view here, the median view, is not anti-European, but moderate European, which is a rather different view. Uh, um, and so the possibility for expressing those differences, I think, is that there to be grasped and all to be developed, rather than rejected simply on the grounds that it takes too much time to be able to cope with this crisis that, that, that confronts us. Thank you. Well, it's very interesting you mentioned some of this coming from rules, because I've just been reading how rules is uh, informed in a lot of his thinking by Kant. And next week I'll be talking about uh, Kant's vision of the European Union, which is incredibly close in some ways to what you were saying in his mm. conception of what it would take to form a, an unstable stability, as it were, or a long-term stability likely to prevent war and likely to lead to a, some kind of long-term mm. relationship between nations. Um, anyway, I'll talk about that next week, but it, let, let's see what people have to say about this. Week. Yeah, and then one day. Yes, uh, well, thank you very much for your presentation. Um, I just, I was wondering why you did not mention at all another article of the Lisbon Treaty relating to participative democracy, and in particular the idea that some citizens from different member states can... Oh, the citizens' initiative. Exactly. Mm. Because I was wondering, listening to you, 
that maybe it is something that could uh, promote this uh, closer union of European peoples because you have to join together and also it could maybe promote better initiatives because it comes from uh, you know, the peoples okay. and the other. Yeah. I mean, um, well, of course, it has to meet certain criteria. So, so uh, it has to be so initiatives are only acceptable if they're deemed to be on a area which falls within the EU's competence. So you couldn't do something where you, you couldn't have a citizens' initiative um, wouldn't even be recognised or allowed if it was for something different to what is entrenched within the treaty. So it can't actually question the treaty's structure. It can only say, well, I think within the treaties you could be doing a policy on X, which you, you're not doing now. Uh, I mean, the, the one which has come closest, and I'm not sure that um, this will be an issue that, that the EU will be able to, to address, uh, because its strongest grounds actually come under uh, the famous um, uh, protocol, first protocol of the European Convention of Human Rights, Article 3, which is the one which was also used in the prisoners' rights case, um, uh, which is that, that but there is a citizens' initiative on giving uh, EU citizens resident in another member state votes in national elections, which currently they don't have. Um, but it's not clear that, well, I mean, it, obviously the, that it possibly could be decided, but I mean, at the present, within, you know, within the treaty, it's not there. So, so uh, it's not clear that you could have a vote or, or that is an allowable initiative. It, I'm not sure whether it has been agreed to or not, but they've begun to collect votes for it. That, that idea um, looks like uh, one which wants to cultivate what you call the transnational European, and yeah. also seems to embody the idea that you were regarding as mainly rhetorical around some idea of our these <coughs> peoples who, from below, could you know have some sharing of views. Mm. You do. It also gives No, but I'm worried, I'm worried that, you know, are you, as it were, buying into an illusion there of this? No, well, maybe, but uh, in my view, it's better to give this power to the citizens than nothing, because <coughs> it can... Uh, well, it's not a power, I mean... You can request that the Commission yeah. consider that it might do something yeah, well, which the Commission has decided already falls within its competence. So, uh, maybe better so, than nothing. Well, right, maybe better than nothing. It's just not, you know, it's not going to change the world because, in a sense, it's only allowed within a very limited remit. Uh, already, more, more initiatives have been refused to, as, as to even get off the ground than have actually been allowed. I mean, but there, there are quite a few. There's a website where you can see them all coming up and how many votes they've got, etc. So, so you can chart. I mean, 
the ones which are which have got the, the most votes, and I think there's something about um, uh, it's to do with animals and uh, uh, um, the uh, uh, yes, it's, it's, it's the tra some, transposition of the directive on animal experimentation, isn't it? That one. I think that's right. Yes. Uh, so, so uh, it's not about resolving the euro crisis, <laughs> I'm afraid. <laughs> okay, yes, so there's a Thank you very much for your um, talk. There are one or two things in it that surprised me. I know you've only got 50 minutes in which to develop your thesis. But you made a reference to to optimality. This is a notion based, if you like, on um, the preferences of nations and aggregating. But from the very start when the European community was first um, formed, if, was it six or seven? If you looked at the distribution of power as distinct from the distribution of um, the votes that the various countries had, and you use the Shapley-Schubik uh, index, Luxembourg had no power at all to veto anything, no matter how, how you actually uh, combined, in fact, the votes of the various countries. Mm. I'm assuming, for example, the Gaullists and the Socialists in France would have voted as a bloc, and the Christian Social Democrats, the Free Democrats, Germany voters of Locke. On that basis, it didn't matter how the vote went, Luxembourg never played a crucial role. None whatever. And the other thing about um, treating citizens equally, um, there's one of the directives on the mutual correction of uh, the mutual recognition of qualifications. Um, Italy and Germany have repeatedly flouted, in fact, the convention on that particular directive. The European Court, in fact, said that they'd been flouted. It took Italy five years <coughs> to reluctantly recognize the recognitions, to recognize, in fact, qualifications of non-Italians as equivalent to Italian uh, qualifications, and so it happened in Germany. In this case, I was involved in this case myself as well. I had to get a senior civil servant to try and take up the cudgels for me. She said that to them, quite bluntly, it's a Kafkaesque situation that the European uh, Union is just simply changing the old posts all the time to avoid doing anything about it. So I was a bit sceptical. But I think, I think the example you've just given serves my point. Uh, in other words, it's, it's very difficult to get policies through which aren't deemed to be in the mutual self-interest of all of the countries. That if a powerful country, in particular like Germany, is, is not willing to accept it, it can hang on for some time before it will adopt, uh, adopt that. And it probably will only come to do it when it begins to find that actually being able to hire people from outside is rather beneficial to the development of its education system and whatever. Germany uh, not push through its right actually to extend its representation. It played, you know. But I mean, that's the, the, but that has been again part of, of of accepting you know, the equality. They have an interest in in doing that. I mean, even under qualified uh, majority voting in the council, you know, the, almost everything is done by consensus. Everything is done by consensus notwithstanding having simplified the rules. Um, yeah, yeah, yes. <coughs> um, could I put it to you that the 
reason why there are great difficulties in taking the decisions to deal with this economic crisis is because there is no democratic legitimacy to those that are having to take the decisions. That the essential nature of representative democracy is that the people determine who shall represent them and, who, and, and how to get rid of them. And yet the European Commission, uh, which proposes legislation, is unaccountable and unelected by the people. Mm. The European Parliament, where uh, at least nine of the member states operate a closed list system, uh, in, in the case of Spain, actually a national closed list system, which stops the people from determining who shall uh, represent them, uh, and the electorate don't determine who should not to represent them. Uh, and then the Council of Ministers who uh, uh, are there and never stand on a European manifesto because when they're elected they stand on national manifestos. So there is no democratic legitimacy to the, to the setup at all. And, in, and then it, it's further uh, uh, made, into a made into difficulties because the representation as such mm. in the Parliament is not equal <coughs> because you have uh, one member for uh, 200,000 people in Luxembourg, but only one for every three quarters of a million in the UK, for example. So the whole thing lacks democracy. And wouldn't it be different if, for example, the President of the Commission was actually elected by the peoples of Europe? Well, I mean, you both sort of made my point and missed it, I think. Uh, so, I mean, <clears throat> I've said all of that, uh, but the, you know, the key issue for is that the main decision makers are the national politicians who are, who have a mandate as national politicians. That's what their mandate is. Let me just finish. Okay. So that is why they can't agree on a policy which is in the European interest because they only will agree on policies which are in their mutual national interests. Now if you want to have a credible European election for for Europe you know to represent the European people, you'd have to ask yourself, is that is there a credible thing called a European demos out there waiting waiting to express itself. Until you give the people the opportunity to vote, you'll never know whether there's a demos out there. Well, they do get regular opportunities to vote in European elections. <laughs> and every extension of the European Parliament, every, well, you say it's meaningless, <laughs> but actually the powers of the European Parliament have expanded exponentially over ever since it was uh, set up. And with every expansion of those powers, the subsequent elections have seen a drop in electoral turnout. The people know it's meaningless because, I, for example here, I can only vote for a party, I can't vote for an individual at all. And, and the, I mean, uh, that's, that's, that's the other point you're making, vote, sorry, point that you're making was about national politicians. Tell that to the people of Greece and to the people of Spain and uh, that it, that their national, and Ireland that their national politicians are taking the decision. And if this banking union goes ahead 
where the budgets and everything is taken into Europe, uh, European hands, national politi politics will become like a parish council. Well, again, I, I mean, in a way I agree, but that is because the, the, the uh, decisions which are being made no longer are ones which, are, which satisfy conditions of mutual self-interest. That's precisely why we're getting the, the types of uh, decisions uh, that are being made now. But, but that's in part because, in certain respects, the euro was set up on, self, on, on false pretenses. That's, that's, so that's the difficulty. Could I just uh, ask you on that, that particular about the euro, because you were talking about, I think quite rightly, about there's a, a tendency to think that if the current setup collapses, it could only, as it were, go back to a balance of powers of national, of nation states in, yeah. in, in, uh, in, a, in a fragmented Europe. Yeah. Whereas you were saying, actually, there could be something better on the other side of this. Um, on the other side of this, yeah. is there a euro? I think, well, possibly not a euro with Greece in it. But I think, I mean, well, there are many different solutions. Yeah. One are, is, are to have two euros, yeah. uh, which would roughly be between northern and southern states. So that's one. One solution. There are a number of, of solutions. Course, there, there, there are already uh, banking unions in the European Union. For example, yeah. the United Kingdom is already a union of three nations, so there's a common currency there. Uh, and presumably one could have more than one common currency within the I EU. I think so, and in a way, you know, having, having a, a, currency, a common currency for economies which are so different yeah. is you know, it's a very difficult and I think ultimately untenable thing to, to have. But that's, uh, you know, that's an issue which will require at least some common policies as to how you deal with the, with the uh, short-term effects. But a more full-blooded federalist would say, well, all you need to do, though, is to sort out capital transfers to prevent that kind of difference? But there are huge, they're of a much greater scale than, than as I say, you know, occurs in any, in any existing state. I mean, they're not like, uh, like anything which occurs in the United States, for example. Or in the UK. Or in the UK. And I think that uh, it's, I mean, the, most of the people who push this are of a social democratic disposition. Mm. I think if you are, then this is actually a disastrous policy because I think if, if you want to have the kinds of welfare policies that we have got used to in Europe, then uh, you need to, to maintain the sort of working democratic politics, which are already under stress within most member states, but which really I don't think are going to be addressed or be at all plausible at the European uh, level. I think uh, it would, one would, would be opening up the grounds to quite vociferous nas and rather nasty right-wing 
parties, for example, such as have already begun to develop in, in Greece, for example. And on the one hand, and to be all the advantage goes within the EU would go to neoliberal policy making. All of the advantages would go that way. It wouldn't be a more equitable system. Okay, yeah, there's a question there. Uh, thank you for your talk. Um, I have two questions. Um, the first one is that I, I think it's very interesting to hear this in the UK that it seems your talk was really uh, more favorable towards the Republican model than the other one. And um, I was wondering what is your main, what is the main reason why you advocate or kind of seem to be more in favor of this? Because Is it because you think there is unequal power um, in this collaboration of states as we see in Greece and Ireland? I mean, what is the, maybe the, the argument behind? Um, and the second one is about um, what was just said about parliaments and public figures. And isn't it isn't one of the problems that we don't seem to have, um, even if there, there could be uh, parties mm. or European parties, they're not yet uh, figures that would represent um, these parties yes. to, to make it more, because even in national politics, publics rely a lot on public figures so right. to, to lead a party. Sure. So. Okay, so... Uh, uh, where am I coming from? Well, I mean, uh, I take political equality seriously, and I take, uh, and I, I think, as I have sort of tried to defend elsewhere, that a uh, an aspect of political equality is uh, a notion of non-domination. That it's not possible for for. Uh, either for rulers to dominate other rulers or, or for different sections of the population to dominate each other. So you need a system where they can be credibly make decisions affecting their collective lives uh, as political equals. And there's also that our freedom is a civic achievement. It's not something which pre-exists politics, but it's something which derives from public policies which are collectively decided upon under conditions of political equality. So you then, you know, if one believes in that, uh, one then has to ask, well, what are credible mechanisms for, for achieving that? And I think uh, that above a certain size, of a political community, it becomes quite hard to do that. But we live in an interconnected world, so we do need ways in which different political communities can cooperate with each other, not least to prevent each other dominating one state dominating another, but also in order to realize common projects. So I, I see the EU in these in these terms. It's a could just, just bring if we go to the second part of this, that um, sort of we'll bring back the Luxembourg case again. Mm. If you have political equality in the European Union as an ambition, and you want to do this through prioritising 
the talk of the European dimension <laughs> in national parliaments, yes. and, uh, where they will in, in put it in their input into uh, yeah. policy formation. Um, won't big states be the ones whose voice is loudest in this space? And you'll never get a political equality unless you, as it were, manufactured Europe in equal chunks. Well, I mean, I think one of the one of the remarkable things is that is that I mean, small states, even Luxembourg. I mean, Luxembourg is of course an extreme case, but you know, states such as. Uh, Ireland and, and Portugal, etc., have got a huge amount from from uh, the EU, and that has been, you know, willingly provided for by by Germany. Obviously, there are historic reasons why Germany has been uh, particularly willing to do that, and I think perhaps a certain reluctance on, at present. It's perhaps no coincidence that. Germany for the first time has both a Chancellor and a President to come from East Germany, uh, where I think a sense of European commitment is less uh, than, than was true as the former West Germany. It's also something which is perhaps a reflects you know, a new generation uh, who don't have the war guilt or whatever. Uh, but nonetheless, you know, I think one of the great achievements of the EU has been that it's seen the inclusion of many states that had gone through in quite recent times, uh, either because of domestic changes or imposed upon them by, by from the outside, period of living under authoritarian rule, and the EU has, has promoted democratization within those countries. And have, so it's done that, met my first criteria of promoting democratic peoples. Uh, and it's promoted the second criteria of equal recognition between those peoples in collective decision making. I think what I find just bizarre is so many people who write about the EU and who work within it they don't see those as being its main achievements. And yet, for me, they quite clearly have been. And they always talk about the EU not achieving some greater goal, which is beyond that. Whereas I think we're in our current mess because of not pursuing that really important goal, which I, I see as being its, its great achievement, as I said. Another way of putting that, which I think is uh, central in Kant's way of thinking about this, is that, that we shouldn't think there's only one thing, which is integration. Mm. There are forms of integration, different forms of integration, and you could have, as it were, teleologies within, within each of them yes. towards some sort of final integration of that form. Uh, I suppose part of what you're arguing is that the one that seeks to get the as it were, the unity of the peoples into one people in some way mm. uh, is is a is a an idea of union that doesn't promote the, the positives of, of democracy. Yeah, so it it, it 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 confuses union with unity. I suppose. Right. 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 Good. right. So, uh, so now there was a second question. Oh yeah. About we? about do we need more? Well, I think that I mean the difficulty of of great 
individuals or whatever, is that because there isn't a European public sphere, we don't have European political figures of that character, and people are known within different national publics. And I just don't think it's <coughs> likely <coughs> that one will be able to develop the um, European public, the politicians that okay. are of that nature. Yeah, linking on to that, and being German, living between Portugal and Germany from the 60s, so I mean the <coughs> the benefits I have now I can travel without lots of documentation mm. and in Portugal the political police not hanging on to my passport and all that. Mm. The question is to get more European encompassing thinking <coughs> of citizens, what yeah. is being done in schools? I mean, well, when I grew up in France was the enemy, and the first time I went to France, everybody said, oh, you're going to France, you're going to France. So these, I mean, that would be the most important thing is if you, if you have to have some kind of citizenship, if there is <coughs> possible, because without a common language, I think it is impossible, because language is still communication more than computers and whatnot. It, I mean, I mean in, in, schools, in schools, there's, there's loads. I mean, there isn't a school which doesn't teach about Europe in a quite different way to, to the past. I mean, so, uh, I mean, I've, I've seen in my own daughter's education, but I mean, I know that there have been quite a few studies on comparing national curriculum uh, on, on the teaching of Europe. Uh, uh, just as there's been a certain Europeanization of most university curriculum. Uh, even even in the UK, um, so I think that that it, you know that's a process which is which is quite firmly in in place. Uh, there's quite a lot of evidence, actually, interesting enough, that the Erasmus scheme is quite a Europeanizing uh, scheme amongst the very few who do it. Of course, it's not that many. Uh, who do it, but it is. Not least because uh, uh, they tend to sort of fall in love with other Europeans and get married. So it's a huge sort of marriage market for American students. So uh, there are these, these, um, these mechanisms, but the vast majority of Europeans do not move. Um, uh, they're not, you know, they, they go to school and they learn about history, but they're not that interested in whether it's European or German or Portuguese history. Uh, so you have those things that you have to fight against. And even, even when it does exist, I mean, of course things exist that, you know, I don't know, um, you think, take uh, last night's England-France match, you had, uh, you know, sort of, uh, uh, the goal was, was scored by, the France scored was scored against a, a teammate in an English team. They both play for Manchester City. So, you know, I think in some ways that that changes how, of course, changes how people look at it because there'll be many people who will, you know, they'll have even divided loyalties watching uh, that match. And quite easily, when England inevitably get the, uh, knocked out, will quite easily transfer their allegiances to other countries because they recognise, they may sort of say, well, I support 
the team, the team that that plays, that uh, most of the players in that in, in that uh, country's team come from, or whatever. So these things are changing, but they do not create a a a demos. That's a that's a rather different thing. Because in every, I mean, when, I, when I'm in Portugal, I go to political meetings, but I go to the local political meetings because that is where I am and that is what concerns yeah, you me. Yeah, you live there. I go to the marches, which, which are happening here. So, I mean, the, <coughs> the idea of a European citizen, I mean... But you're an exceptional person. You, no, you yeah, speak no. very good English, you probably speak good Portuguese as well as German. I mean, you're not like most people, I'm afraid. <laughs> What is, what You're is an exceptional person. No, but why you can't, what, but, but one of the things I sometimes think is that maybe she's a sort of representation of the future, and that, as it were, you're hanging on to these old, saggy national demoses. It hasn't changed that much. It hasn't changed that much. That's the point. Which, as uh, you said, are under strain. It hasn't changed that much. I mean, yes, uh, no, that's the number now, of people moving around is no really is really no different to what what it was. But you're hanging on to the fag end of the past, which is changing. Yes. But it isn't changing. changing. It isn't changing. I mean, that's the, these things have remained remarkably stable over, over you know, significantly <coughs> long periods of time. I mean, that's the, that's the point. I mean, uh, attitudes between peoples haven't altered. One iota, despite all of this. I know that because, I mean, wherever I go, what, I still say I'm German, obviously. Mm. But, so I say, oh, you're German. Oh, well, you know, the Second World War and this and that, and now the, the Euro bonds and Merkel and whatnot. <laughs> but then it's, it's this thing, oh, you're German, oh, well, but you are a nice person, so... <laughs> <laughs> Even though, I mean, I, uh, I remember when Portugal sort of joined them, and I, I used to go to quite a lot of things in, in Portugal, and one of my friends used to joke, oh yes, uh, every, every Portuguese citizen is now twinned with a German citizen, uh, which is even more the case, to be even more the case now. But then, you see, I presume that, that your reception... When was that? Well, that, this would have been in the, in the uh, early 90s. Would have been quite different to what is the case ten years, twenty years later. Okay, Richard, there's a question up the back there. Yeah. Via um, criticism about um, that um, about the democratic, or to which extent the European Union is democratic or not, um, isn't or what I would suggest is that in order to make decisions more in the common interest as opposed to the national interest, um, there must be a common ground for decisions. And a common ground, uh, what I see as a common ground, is, would be like a higher extent of um, harmonization of fiscal policy, um, more progress in economic integration in the whole. Um, because that would give politicians um, yeah, the background to, to Time, there is a um, people fear. There's a, there's a severe fear of having more integration because um, people feel that this is against the, the own interest. So isn't that kind of contra? They, 
situation? And uh, I mean, are there any ideas how we can overcome this kind of vicious What advice was to say to you? Uh, I, I don't know. Where, where do you come from? But say what I, I was because I, I just want to, I do want to say German. I would say, uh, uh, so, I say the way to make sure that everybody understands uh, uh, what's the uh, common your uh, uh, the language that uh, uh, Esperanto Esperanto is it would be false everyone to speak Esperanto. English. Yeah. Well. <laughs> I'm saying Esperanto. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm using Esperanto deliberately because it would have to be imposed on yeah. everybody. Right? Yeah. Uh, no. If anyone who didn't speak Esperanto just. They wouldn't get nothing. You have to pass a test, otherwise, you'd lose your job. Okay. If I didn't know. Now, now, that is what you're suggesting. You're sort of saying if we had all these common policies, then of course everyone would take an interest in them. No, that's exactly so. So you're putting the car before the horse. You're saying, I believe that there should be all of these common policies. So I think if we impose them all, then everyone would accept them and really buy into them and accept that Europe was a good thing. But of course. That might well be true. That might be well true. I'm sure you could coerce people into all speaking Esperanto. But one of the reasons why we, you know, our states were formed in the ways that they were was through a whole period. We had walls, massive coercion, top-down policies in order to create these units called states. They didn't come about by a nice peaceful process. They came about through extraordinarily violent processes, okay, and imposition. Now, we now live in times where we regard this as unacceptable. Okay? We don't believe that it is acceptable to impose policies upon people in this violent and coercive top-down way. And indeed, as one releases that as one of the effects of that is that one sees more and more these coercively created units begin to split up in the UK. It's happening. Uh, uh, it's happening in Spain and in almost across the the European Union, but this is beginning to happen. Uh, you know, the, the reunification of, of Germany was one of the almost the only example I can think where uh, uh, you you got a peaceful and not uh, 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 formation of a larger of a larger unit, uh, in which, of course, there were teething problems, but because of a pre-existing, as a result of many many wars and a great deal of violence happening, uh, there was a pre-existing bond that was felt to be there. But Yeah, but, you're, but you are unique. You're small. You're, you're, you're a small percentage. You're, you are a small percentage. I mean, and so why should 10% of the European population who say they're European citizens, okay, even within your own country, you're, a, you're not anywhere near a majority. 
nowhere near in the majority. So if you're a, if you're a liberal and you're a democrat as well, as I assume you must be, okay, uh, then surely you've got to sort of say, well, I've got to persuade everybody to, to feel this too. And if you're persuading, it can't be, oh, if we uh, had all of these common policies, then everyone would become, become common. Well, of course, that would be true, but it would be like me sort of saying, well, if from now I'm only going to, I'm only accepting uh, people who, who talk Esperanto. Well, of course, I'm sure you're intelligent enough to, to learn it quite quickly, but it would have been something which was imposed upon you. One more very quick question. No, Thank you. Uh, I would like to, to ask uh, your views about the, the growing debate on political union, uh, because uh, obviously I mean, this uh, idea has been put forward um, by Germany in response uh, to um, a demand such as Eurobonds and the mm -hmm. banking union, especially by Spain, Italy, now France is pushing. Um, and I think uh, Angela Merkel is right to say, well, if you want to create this instrument, uh, you need some kind of legitimate European authority. Um, so my view is that uh, it's going to be very difficult to get anywhere because uh, <laughs> um, if uh, Germany's conditions are to create some kind of, uh, um, yeah, uh, European Finance Minister, for example. Um, that would be very difficult to uh, persuade French citizens who voted no in 2005 against the Constitution to accept that. And I think uh, French or Italian politi politicians don't take the time to explain the political implications of, the, of what they, <laughs> they argue for now. Uh, so I would like to know uh, what you think about that. Well, I think it is difficult. I also think that, it, that what is being suggested is not a political union of a, necessarily of a democratic kind, but a political union where one has, if you like, more centralised responsible authorities. So this is the formation of, of uh, a political union to pursue a policy which is deemed to be imagined, you know, imagined to be in the common European interest as, as, as conceived by those who will put it into place. But I think um, the policies that, that will be imposed will therefore be ones deemed to be responsible rather than responsive to the interests of, of, of those concerned. I mean, I think that's another reason why I I'm against the imposition of, of these as opposed to working with the grain because I think that when one has to persuade lots of people to move into something in an uncoerced way, in other words one persuades them saying that there are alternatives rather than it's either starvation or you do this, um, then of course one, one uh, is much more likely to move towards policies which are going to be equitable for all citizens uh, because people are well, won't wish to be persuaded but that it genuinely is something which will answer their common avowable interests but if it's something which is in, imposed in order to preserve 
the vested interests of particularly powerful groups, then it's not going to be in the common avowed interests of, of, of all citizens. Uh, uh, it'll simply benefit those the privileged. And as I said before, though I know that, that many who voice common European programs are, are doing so honestly and, and with a great deal of idealism, I think that they almost always come from privileged sections of community and therefore are unaware of the impact of what they're putting forward on the less privileged members of, of the community. Well, Richard, we've been the uh, privileged section of the community tonight, so thank you very much.